right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please open it to James in the New Testament, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, or whatever device you might be using. Scroll over there. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, um, I like to say this every once in a while, just because, you know, we're in a church doesn't mean you're necessarily familiar with the Bible, so... When, you, when I say James chapter 2, I mean the big black bold numbers. Those are the chapter numbers in the Bible. Um, and then the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. So when you say James chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 26, that's how you can kind of find your place in the Bible. So James 2, 14 through 26. I'll read that for us. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's Word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is a a difficult text. Um, We know throughout church history it has been, and so I pray that you would um, give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, uh, give us clarity. God, that you would just show us your glorious gospel once again through these words, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. That's... That was my kid, I think. Yep. So we live in this uh, cultural context, and I don't believe it's just in the southern United States, although sometimes it can be a little bit heightened uh, in, in this area of the country. But we live in a cultural context, I think, across the board, where Christianity is affirmed simply based on some variation of the phrase, I am a Christian. So that, that can be something that's spoken, that's something that's confessed by somebody, and they say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. Or, or maybe that's just the way in which they kind of, uh, you know, they do certain things that would be or could appear uh, Christian-like. So some variation of this phrase is, is used by politicians during election season to garner up more votes. Uh, a sitting president, and I won't name names, uh, whose, whose life hardly represents one who has forsaken everything for the sake of the gospel, poses awkwardly with the Bible for a photo op. Uh, 
businessmen and businesswomen displaying Christian images in their advertisements to drum up business, maybe. Or maybe you've qualified someone in your life as a Christian, even though their life shows zero evidence of Christianity, because you'd hate to think that they're not a Christian simply because you love them so much. So you want to place that label upon them. Or maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with questions around this topic. Maybe you've asked yourself uh, the question, am I really saved? Am am, Am I a Christian? How can I really know that I'm a Christian? Well, today's text is the text for you if, this, if any of this uh, you identify with. Because it's a text that helps those of us who want to know what true biblical Christianity looks like. Now, the, these verses tend to be, be verses where, where Christians of all stripes seem to trip up. They, they seem to get confused about, about um, you know, faith and works and and what Paul has said and what James uh, is saying. And so you can even consider Paul's words from Romans chapter 3, verse 28, where, where he clearly says, For we hold that, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So faith alone. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then consider that that one of the key tenets of our theology as a church, we build this theology on those particular verses, Reformed theology, is that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And we would all say amen to that. So you can see pretty quickly how James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 could be a tad bit confusing. Is it my faith alone, or is it by my works that I am justified? And the answer is, yes. And so I want us to unpack that this morning in two ways, only two points this morning. That doesn't mean this is going to be shorter. But two ways. One is we're going to look at two different types of faith. One is a dead faith, And the second is a living faith. So a dead faith in 14 through 17, and then a living faith in 18 through 26. And then, how do do we need to respond to all of this? Because it's asking a really tough question. Is your faith dead or alive? Is your faith dead or alive? Don't start thinking about other people in your life right now. You can do that later. Is your faith dead or alive? So first, dead faith. Look at verse 14. James asks, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So James begins this section of his letter by asking two questions. So he's, 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 kind of, he's kind of doing this uh, Socratic model or, or even we could say kind of a catechism here to say, uh, what good is it if faith does not have works? Can that faith save him? So the first question, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then the second question is, can that sort of faith save that particular person? 
So first, you ha- first we have to understand that the faith James is talking about is faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what James is talking about here. A faith that is, that is in Christ alone. So James implies that if you, say, if you say you have faith in Christ, then there are certain expectations that should come out of this faith that you say you have in Christ. So James is describing someone within this first question that says, they have faith, I have faith, but their life doesn't line up with what they say they have. Because a life lived in Christ should look different. It should look different. There should be be distinguishing marks of the Christian that distinguish you from everybody else around you that is not a Christian. And this isn't just different for being difference sake, okay? This isn't like, like you become a Christian and then all of a sudden you have to start wearing, you know, khaki shorts and, and, or khaki pants and khaki skirts down to your ankles and white shirts and you've got to stop listening to secular music and do all these, these different things that, you, that, that some people say you have to do. Now, your life should be different because you're walking according to a different framework than the world, your, your, your worldview is completely changed. So James talks about this throughout. The, you know, this isn't just a, a verse that we kind of pull out and look at. We have to look at the entire, the entire context of James. James has already been talking about this from James chapter 1. He says, look, if, if, you know, if you come up against trials, the way the Christian responds to trials is joy. That, is, that, is not, that doesn't make sense to the world. The, the way in which we are to, to speak to one another is to be life-giving. James will later say. Not, not talking behind people's back, not gossiping about people. The, the way in which we are to treat those who are different from us, we are not to show them partiality, we are to welcome them in. They're, they're to come and sit next to us in the service. They're to be invited into our home and at our table. This is the way the Christian is to look and to live. And, and, and so much so is that we, you believe this framework so much that you dedicate all of your waking hours to it. Not just Sunday from 10 to 11.30. Because this framework is life-giving. It's, it's filled with, with real hope and it gives you an accurate picture of reality. It shows you what true reality is. So the faith that James calls into question here in verse 14 is not this. James says, what good is it? What good is this faith without works? And he's leading us to the answer is none. It is no good. It's an empty, lifeless, stagnant faith. Now this reminded me of Jesus' parable in his Sermon on the Mount when he describes Christians as salt in light from Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus says if salt loses its saltiness, which is what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to be salty, it's supposed to bring flavor, it, it has all sorts of other uses. If it loses what it is meant to be, it is useless. It is only good to be trampled upon 
the ground. And if light, in the same way, if light is hidden under a basket, so you light a, you light a, a candle or a light, and then you immediately put a basket over it, Jesus says that's of no help to anyone. No one can see it. It doesn't give light. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. But Jesus says we are to let our lights shine. Jesus says we are to be the salt of the earth. Why? Well, so that others can see our good works and then do what with what they see? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not patting you on the back and saying what a wonderful person you are, but the point of your good works as a believer is for others to see them and then give glory to your Father in heaven. So here we're getting somewhere. Because the reason why a faith without works is useless is because a faith without works doesn't point to your heavenly Father. A faith without works actually points to yourself. Because you want people to say, well, they're a Christian. And that's it. That you want people to vote for you. You want people to, 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 have a, to, to think well of you. So you say, well, I'm a Christian. But you have no works and no fruit to back that claim up. So what this type of faith is, James implies with his second question. He says, does this sort of faith save? Does a faith without works save? Because a faith that is without works is not the faith that you find in Christ. It's a counterfeit faith. So no, it's not a faith that saves. It's not a faith that is salvific in any sense of the word. It does nothing for you because a faith without works is of no use because it is no good to anyone and it doesn't bring your heavenly Father any glory. It's not a saving faith. Because a faith that saves moves an individual towards work. It moves an individual to bear fruit. Simply put, we can say that James is describing for us, I think this is what James is trying to boil everything down. James, James, just so you know, is not involved in any sort of controversial arguments with the Apostle Paul. They're not going back and forth and arguing about, is it faith alone or is it faith by works? They're not doing that. They agree. Okay? So James's point here is to describe for us what biblical Christianity is to look like. Because there is a lot of confusion in the world when you have certain people saying they're Christians and their life is, uh, is a disaster. Their life is lived in in, in any other way but Christianity. And so you have the world looking in and saying, if that's Christianity, I want no part of it. And so what James is saying is, he is saying, this is what Christianity, true Christianity, biblical Christianity looks like. So if someone says he has faith in Christ, I am a Christian, I have faith in Christ, but lacks the evidential works, then you must doubt that he is actually, if he is actually truly saved. If the pattern of their life is not this fruitful living for the sake of the gospel, you have to doubt 
whether that person is truly a believer or not. Now I know, that's a really hard word to hear. Until you look at how James logically lays out what this type of faith looks like. Look at the example he gives in verses 15 through 17. Very practical. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to... Now, let me just stop right there, because when he says brother or sister, he is referring to people within the church. Okay? So if, if a brother or sister, a covenant member of your church, comes to you, and they lack clothing and they lack in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body... What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Francis Schaeffer distinguished between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So the Christians should possess both. But orthodoxy is right belief. And a lot of us, we're, are, we love some good orthodoxy. We love to read our theologians. We love to listen to our, our John Pipers and, 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 and uh, preachers in that kind of ilk. And we love to proclaim our good orthodoxy, our right belief. So like the example James gives, these, these are people who are in the church who know the right things to say to an individual who is in need. They have all the right theology. You, you may even agree with what they say they believe. They may be reading the same books as you. They may be listening to the same preachers and theologian as you. But if a person comes to them for food and clothing, so they're putting their faith that they say they have to the test, instead of helping them, they speak only words that are spoken in an orthodox way. Go in peace, brother or sister. Be warmed and filled. Which sounds so beautiful. But really is poison. And we, we may not say it in that, in that, uh, in that type of way, um, although I know some of you will do that now as a joke but to me, but, um, but go in peace. Our go in peace would be, um, I, well, man, that's really hard. I'll pray for you. That's our go in peace. And that way we can kind of go, I'll pray for you and then walk away. And they go away empty-handed. The words accomplish nothing. The words don't put food on the table. And the words don't put clothes on the body. And I think most devastatingly, they don't show faith in Christ, but rather this empty religiosity. And James says there is no good in that. Because it does no good to that individual and ultimately doesn't express faith in Christ. We heard this back in James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, so if anyone thinks he has faith in Christ and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Your life as a believer is changed thoroughly from your words, James says, into your actions. So the way that you speak is changed by the gospel, but also the way in which you live your life is changed by the gospel. And that is what Schaefer called orthopraxy. 
Orthopraxy is living out that right belief. It is living out your orthodoxy. And we see both of these extremes within our culture, don't we? So you have one side of the spectrum uh, who, who hold, have those who, who hold the right belief. They have really good orthodoxy. We would agree with what they say. Uh, they say all the right things and they use all the right words. They practice the right rituals. The pomp and circumstance is present in this person's life, but the good works of God are not present. The other extreme is that they only have orthopraxy and no orthodoxy. We would call these people liberal. They do all the right things. They serve the poor. But their orthodoxy is off because they have made something else other than Christ, the gospel. So this is where James and Paul come together. Because you can't have what Paul is saying and you can't, have what you, you can't separate the two. They're, they are two sides of the same coin. They, uh, one, one commentator described it, it's like Paul and James are standing back to back in a battle. And they are fighting the same fight against the same enemies. So Paul is saying, faith alone saves, and James is, is kind of filling this out and saying that, that faith alone will then be manifested in a person's life. If you believe that faith alone saves, then your life will be changed. They will have both good orthodoxy as well as good orthopraxy. And so what James is doing when he says in chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, he is simply echoing the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. You may remember Matthew 7, 15 through 20, where Jesus speaking about how you identify false prophets within the church. He says, this is how you'll recognize false prophets. You will recognize them by their fruits. A false prophet, someone who is not a Christian, will not bear good fruits. And then in verse 21 of that same chapter, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me at the end of days, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in So in both of these, uh, Jesus is saying that a person who truly belongs to him, a person who truly belongs to Jesus, will be identified by their works, by their fruit. And these echoes continue to, to reverber, reverberate into our text this morning because in these next verses, James introduce, uh, introduces us to two people to illustrate, illustrate that true faith is a working faith, that it is a living faith. And the way he makes this clear is he gives, he gives two examples. One, the, two, the first two examples are from everyday life, and then the other two examples are from the Bible. So in every, the, the, the everyday life examples in verse 18. James writes, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's an argument I'm sure that some of you have gotten into with someone that you may know, and they, they call themselves a Christian, and, then, and the minute you call them to the mat because their life doesn't, end, doesn't line up with what they say they believe, this is the argument that entails. Well, you, I, I, you know, I have faith. 
And you, and you say you have, you know, have faith with works. You, you, know, you get into this argument over, over these things. And so here in verse 18, James is the one that is, that, is, that is answering his objector here. And he does this through logic. So you have this person who comes to James and says, look, you say you have faith and that's fine, but I have works and that's also okay. So these are two extremes we just talked about. Working themselves out in real life. So one person is saying, I have faith apart from works, while the other is saying, I have faith by my works. And not only that, I will show you this faith by these works. So James challenges the objector here by asking him to to, to make visible. He's like, okay, if that's true, then show me your faith. Show me your faith. And obviously, his objector can only stand there in silence because he just said, I only have faith. I don't have anything to show for it. You can't show something you don't have. So essentially, saying, I can't see your faith if you don't have good deeds. So again, the lesson we're learning here is that the Christian life is not a life of stagnation. In my mind, I picture just this smelly pond that's just sitting in the middle of the woods and has no, it's not moving, it's just sitting there. It's stagnant, it stinks. Nothing can live there. You, You wouldn't want to go into it. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of of constant movement, movement of, of constant action that is alive and beautiful like a raging river that never stops. So to take this further, to take his argument further, James caps off his response to his objector by using an extreme comparison of, of their faith to the faith of demons. Look at verses 19 through 20. James says to this person, you believe that God is one, you do well. So you believe in everything that the scriptures are teaching about who God is. You believe that he's one, so you, have, you, you believe in the Trinity. You believe in every aspect of, 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 of the theology that is, that is being proclaimed from this pulpit or whatever pulpit they're at. And then James says, but you know what? Even the demons believe that God is one. And, and, and their belief leads them to shudder and fear. Do you want to be shown, you foolish, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, we have examples in the life of Jesus, just to back this claim up, uh, and, and others where, 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 they, where he encountered demons who professed belief in who he was. Mark chapter 1 Right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, it says this, Just then, a a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, by a demon, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then in another instance, in, in Acts chapter 19, and you might be familiar with the story, the, the seven sons of, of Sceva were trying to cast out demons. They were trying to make a, a quick 
uh, buck. And so they were trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They saw that this was working for the apostles. So they said, surely this will work for me. And so they try to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And the demons respond to them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then if you go on in this story, I didn't put it in there, but they get their butts kicked. And it's pretty funny. So this is to say, the demons would profess with us the Apostles' Creed. The demons would profess with us the Nicene Creed. The demons would profess with us the catechisms. They would say, yeah, all that's true. All that's right. They would agree with everything that we are learning from the Scriptures right now at this very moment. Because, let me just tell you, demons are not trying to deny God's existence. It's impossible. They know that God exists. They have felt His wrath. They have felt His power. And they continue to do so. They know their end is coming. They're not trying to deny God's existing, the existence. They're just trying to corrupt His existence in your own heart and mind. That's what demons do. But James is saying on both of these accounts, the one who says, I have faith, but I don't have works, and the demons, that just because they know who Jesus is, it doesn't change who they are. So you can say, I know who Jesus is all day long. And unless it changes who you are, it does nothing for you. Because in both of these situations, faith involves a, a verbal profession that doesn't go beyond their words. The demons know, but they're still demons. James, on the other hand, says... I can show you my faith by my works. I can give you a, a couple of clear examples, actually, of what my faith looks like by pointing you to the Old Testament, by pointing you to these clear biblical examples. So first, uh, it, it, he gives the example of Abraham in verses 21 through 24. James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now on the surface of this argument it may seem like James is contradicting Paul when he says it's not by faith alone and we say oh my goodness Calvin would roll over in his grave if he heard this. But you, he, he goes on, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But before you jump to any conclusions, I just want to point out that Paul and James both use the same argument from the same text in Genesis chapter 15 to make their points about faith. They both use Genesis 15. They both use the example of Abraham. So in Genesis 15, 6, you have Abraham believes God, and it says it was counted to him as righteousness. Then, if you jump ahead to Genesis chapter 22, Abraham demonstrates his belief to us through his willingness to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, 12. 
did not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So how does God say that Abraham fears him? How does he know that Abraham fears him? It's through his actions. It's through his works. And so this also implies at the same time that if Abraham didn't obey God in this way, if he didn't obey God, it it would have meant that he didn't have true faith in God. That his faith would have been an empty faith. It would have been a dead faith, not a living faith. So this sort of connects us back to what James says in in chapter 1, when he says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So this is a trial for Abraham. So uh, hopefully none of you will ever be called to, to uh, sacrifice your, your child. If you do, please call me first uh, so I can let you know that you probably got that wrong. But this is a trial that Abraham encounters. And, and so you, when you encounter a trial, you have, to, you have to ask yourself this question, how am I tempted to sin in this particular trial? How am I tempted to sin in this? And then that's the sin you seek to avoid, confess and avoid. And so in one of the ways that you will be tempted in every trial is to disbelieve. You, you will want to disbelieve that God is good to you. You will want to disbelieve that, that He loves you as a, fa- as a father loves you. You'll, you'll want to disbelieve that he, he has actually saved you out of your sin. So we have this occurrence in Genesis 15 where Abraham believes these words spoken to him by God. And believes them. Beautiful scene. Count, go out and go out and, and look up at the stars. I'm sure it was filled with stars and it was clear as anything. And he just looked up and it was beautiful. And he has this beautiful moment with God. Everything is peaceful. It's, it's nighttime. He's, you know, attempting to count the stars and probably laughing to himself at how ridiculous this sounds, but how good God is. And then you get to Genesis chapter 22 and God says, I want you to go kill your son. I want you to go sacrifice your only son on the altar. Slit his throat. And so you have in Genesis 22, Abraham encountering this trial, and we see what he does. He walks out his faith in obedience to what he says he believes. Will God actually give me this inheritance? Will God actually give me these generations? And he says, yes, he will. So much so that I'll sacrifice my son because he said to do it, and knowing full well that if I had to follow through with that, that God would resurrect him. That God would bring him back. So how do you walk out that kind of faith in your everyday life? What does that look like? I can just a couple of I mean a couple of examples. I mean if you just look in the Bible, I mean it's really simple. In a lot of ways, um, kids obey your parents and honor them. That's that's a way you can walk your faith out. Uh, husbands and wives uh, 
don't, don't cheat on your spouse. Be faithful, them, faithful to them to the end. Don't leave them for another. I mean, you can just go on and on. There's so many, there's so many illustrations to that. Uh, how, how you speak to one another. Speak words that bring life, not words that bring death. Take care of the poor. You walk out that kind of faith in your everyday life. Uh, do your co-workers... Do your classmates, uh, does your family know you're a Christian? And do they know because you've told them you're a Christian? Or do they know because you live it out in the everyday? And they can't help but know that you're a believer. Or would they be surprised? Would they be surprised if you show up at work one day and say, you know, I'm a Christian, I can't do that, this or the other, and they're like, well, you did it yesterday. Would, would, your, would your wife or your husband or your children be surprised to know that you profess Christ as your Lord and Savior? James's second Bible example is from the life of Rahab, verses 25 through 26. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So if you're unfamiliar with the story of Rahab, it comes from Joshua 2. And it's after Joshua has taken command of the Israelites. And, and Joshua's main task is to do what Moses could not do, which is to bring God's people into the promised land, which means they had to go in and conquer uh, in abundance of enemies. So being a good a strategic commander, uh, Joshua sends men to spy out the land. So he sends these two men to, to spy out the land, to see what they're up against, and as they fulfill their task, they are found out by their enemy. And their enemy comes looking for them. And Rahab, Rahab, known as Rahab the prostitute, which is unfortunate in the, in the Old Testament, but Rahab the prostitute hides these two men. She, she commits treason against her own people. If she is found out, she is killed on the spot. She puts her life on the line. Why does she do this? Joshua 2, 9-14. I know that the Lord has given you... This is Rahab. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sheon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Profession of faith. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the minister her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And she walks in obedience 
to her profession in the God of Israel. And simply, she was changed by the gospel. She went from being uh, uh, Rahab the prostitute to later in the New Testament, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, she is one of three women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. It's prostitute. And then later in Hebrews chapter 11, which we know as the, you know, the great hall of faith chapter where all of these, these great men and women of the faith are listed one after the other, Rahab is on that list. She is among the heroes of the faith because she is a model to us of a faith completed by works. I believe in the God of Israel, and then she lives that out. She didn't just say, I heard all those stories about the God of the Hebrews, how the God of the Hebrews saves. She actually believed them, and the way we know she believed them was proven through her actions. She was adopted into the family of God. So what do these examples show us about this faith? Well, they show us that the faith we have in Christ is not empty. That, that faith alone does save. A- Abraham and Rahab were not saved by the works. You see that in both accounts. They believed faith alone, but the faith they were given was not alone. It caused them to act. It caused them to live. It caused them to bear fruit. As it is with you and I. It is by faith alone that you are saved, but that faith is not an empty, dead faith. It is a faith that is, that is overflowing with the good works of God that He has given to those who are His. So I read from Ephesians 2 earlier, but let me just finish that thought out that Paul has in Ephesians chapter 2 and read all the way to verse 10, because Paul brings all of this together. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These aren't suggestions, but what He has given us to do. One way I've been trying to think about it this week is kind of see, seeing faith as a gift from God. So, so He gives you a box wrapped with a bow on top. It's a gift. So you've done nothing to earn it. You've done nothing to deserve it. It's a free gift. And, and then it just, just kind of dawned on me, what if you opened this box, this box of faith, and you found it empty? And then God says, oh yeah, one last thing. If, if, if you want the gift, you have to accomplish this list of to-dos. You have to, you have to, you have to fulfill these, these laws perfectly and if, you, and if you do, I'll fill the box with the true gift. I'll give you Jesus. I'll give you what you need. But then, you might say, oh, that's, that's great. I can, I can do those things. But, but listen, you won't know you've earned it until you die. Now, there is a lot of people in this world who hold that sort of theology. And I can just tell you, one, that it is ridiculous, but also terrifying to not have that sort of assurance. 
So, what, so that's not what God gives to us. He doesn't give you this empty box. He doesn't give you this empty gift of faith. When he gives us the gift of Christ, he does that from the get-go. You are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. Automatically. Jesus says that you profess with your mouth. He says to confess your sins and to repent and believe the gospel. That is a verbal action that takes place at one moment in time, but it's also something that you are living out. So this gift that you're given is not an empty box, but Paul is saying it is a gift that is filled with good works. And what are these good works supposed to do? But none other than pointing you back over and over again to your gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only that, on top of that, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. So it's like when you get gift cards for Christmas. But not only that, it is pointing everyone else around you to this same loving Father who gives His only Son for you. Over and over again. That's what your works are doing. So how do you respond to this? So sometime this week, I want you to take a spiritual inventory. And I think this is good to do every once in a while. Take a spiritual inventory of your life and ask yourself this question, what kind of faith do I have? If I were to tell my coworkers that I'm a, that I'm a Christian, would they be surprised? If I were to tell my classmates that I'm a Christian, would they be surprised? Or would they say, oh, we knew that. We could just tell by the way that you live your life. Is your faith dead or is it living? Now, the, the great thing about an exercise like this for those of us who are in Christ is that you are working this out in, in, the, in the grace of God that you possess in Christ. So there's no fear in that. There's no fear in that. There is a good, there is a good possibility that you've had a rough six months or, or maybe you're still kind of in that COVID funk and you just don't feel like you have been living for the Lord. There is, forgive, there is grace and there is forgiveness in that. And so this should, this should also draw us into repentance and confession to a God who hears us and, 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 and forgives us. We've already done that this morning. So you can look at your life with this sort of lens and know that, that while you're not perfect, you are one by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit who is striving to live a life that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a few things that hopefully you will begin to recognize as you take this spiritual inventory. First, there's a place for good works because in salvation, you're saved not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. The reason why an unbeliever cannot fulfill the good works that God has given to the believer is because they are under the power of sin. So everything they do, even if it looks good from the outside, God says is filthy rags. It is worthless and useless. So your good works accomplished means that change and growth are now possible by God through the Holy Spirit working in you. So hopefully you can take some great encouragement from that and say, look, I see these good works in my life. That doesn't mean I'm completely consumed by my sin and that God is still doing His work in me. It's not complete yet. And secondly, good works done in faith also serve to assure us 
In 1 Thessalonians 1, 3-5, Paul says this to the Thessalonian church. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul says we are assured that you are chosen by God because of your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness in the hope of Christ. You can be assured of your faith by your works. Thirdly, is found in our witness to the world. We, we recited all of this in the catechism. This is where I'm pulling these three things. When we do good works, what we are ultimately doing is we are not looking for a pat on, on the back or for somebody to say good job or something that we can post on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Ultimately, what we are doing is we are glorifying our Heavenly Father. And then when we do these good works to glorify our Heavenly Father, the Scriptures tell us that people will see those good works being performed and they too will give glory to your Father in heaven. They too will be one to Christ because of what they see in your life. Because what we ultimately point to is not ourselves, but a loving Heavenly Father who has made a way for us to have peace with Him through His Son who lived a faithful life that we could never live, that died a death that we deserved for our sin, and then being raised again on the third day from the dead so that the inheritance that is promised to us is sealed. And no one can take that from us. So we don't trust in our works to save us. But we trust in this finished work of Christ to do just that. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are we are thankful that we that this is not a message of of burden, but that this is a message of again of your of your grace and your mercy that can only be found in Christ alone. And so, Father, I pray as those who have been called by the good name of Christ, who have been adopted into your family, who are now sons and daughters of the King, that we would in turn be these ministers of this kingdom, that we would be, that we would be ministers of this gospel that has rescued us from our sin. And that would come out in our language, but that it would also come out in the way that we live our lives. God, help us to be changed even this week in this day. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.